Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we begin a new sermon series, Easter in the First Person. How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look like to those who were there? We start with the story of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who centuries before the events of Easter saw in his mind's eye the face of the great suffering servant. Join us now for the message, Isaiah Twas Foretold It. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. We are so happy to have all of you here worshiping with us, whether you are here in the sanctuary or you're worshiping with us at home. The story of Easter actually started centuries before the events of Holy Week. In fact, the story of Easter really began to take shape in the writings of the great prophet Isaiah. So later on, we'll be hearing the story of Isaiah and the part that he plays in the story of Easter. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression astray. We have all turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God for the people of God. My grandfather often sat and looked out into the desert as if he were waiting for the return of the great army of Judah. Now he may not remember what he did yesterday. Sometimes he didn't remember the faces of his own family. But like elderly soldiers from every generation, he could tell you every detail of what had occurred 50 years ago when he was a young soldier in the war that changed everything. My name is Isaiah, and I was born in Babylon. My father was born in Babylon, but my grandfather was born a free Judean in the village of Bethlehem just outside of Jerusalem. And he was always so proud that he came from the same village 
as the great King David, the greatest king who ever sat on the throne of Israel. But King David reigned 400 years ago. And since then, the kingdom of Israel had split into two realms. The northern tribes retained the name of Israel, while the southern tribe of Judah became its own kingdom. But the northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians about 130 years ago. Many of the people were killed, and many of those who remained were sent into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah, we barely survived, and Assyria remained a constant threat to our independence. So because of this threat, we Judeans were thrilled and relieved when the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. The Assyrians were finally repaid for all the destruction that they had brought upon other people. But then the Babylonians came for us. I'm almost 30 years old now. My grandfather's now in the eighth decade of his life, an age, by the way, that's barely uh, ever achieved among my people. I've grown up hearing all of my grandfather's stories about the war with Babylon and its aftermath, the, the humiliating defeat, the forced exile to the land of our conquerors, and about all the dead bodies. The dead bodies of the Judean soldiers out there in the fields and the bodies of the exiles who were lost on that death march back to Babylon. Now my father had long ago grow, grown quite weary of his father's tales about life back in Judah. To him, Jerusalem was just a faraway city with which he no, had no connection, a city he'd never laid eyes on. My very practical father said that we needed to accept facts. Judah lost the war. We live in Babylon now, and here is where we must live our lives. And in fact, he had embraced a lot of Babylonian culture and had, in fact, become quite a successful merchant. merchant. Uh, grandfather, on the other hand, he couldn't stop talking about Judah, losing his home, his country, his parents. Those were traumas from which he would never recover. Unlike my father, I loved grandfather's stories. They were filled with, with adventure and acts of heroism and courage, as well as great sadness. But it was a fierce, proud sadness that affected me deeply. When grandfather was a child, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. The young king Jehoiachin of Judah decided to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar along with his mother and his wives. He wisely knew that Judah had no real chance against Nebuchadnezzar and he wished to spare his family from becoming slaughtered. Jehoiachin, his family, and the elite of Jerusalem were taken exiled back into Babylon. And then the king of Babylon set up the, Judea, the Judean king's uncle Zedekiah as a puppet king. After several years, however, Zedekiah decided to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And by this time, my grandfather was in the army and he fought against the Babylonians. At first, my, my grandfather was proud to be fighting for the freedom of his people and he fully supported this rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant. He had no right to try and dominate the Judeans. My grandfather had remembered how Nebuchadnezzar had terrorized and violated the people the first time he'd come around. Women, children, the elderly became refugees as they tried to escape his violence. Families were torn apart as the men grimly stayed behind to fight. 
Nebuchadnezzar's troops showed no mercy as they targeted civilians, killing and pillaging without any sense of shame at their atrocities. Why did some kings think that such suffering and violence was justifiable in their quest for profit, power, and prestige? Why did they think that they had the right to impose their will on innocent people? Well, at first, almost to everyone's surprise, the Judeans were successful in resisting the far superior Babylonian army. Grandfather told the stories of these brazen offenses and these daring raids that he and his fellow Judean soldiers committed against the Babylonians. But the rebellion summoned King Nebuchadnezzar himself to return to Judah. And once again, he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, sealing Zedekiah and his army, including my grandfather, within the city walls. And after a while, the people of Jerusalem began to starve. Zedekiah decided to make one last desperate attempt to throw off the siege. So in the middle of the night, Zedekiah's soldiers made a breach in the city wall, and then they made a break for open country. Their hope was to lure Nebuchadnezzar's army away from the city and then engage them in battle away from the people. The Babylonian army chased them all the way to the plain of Jericho. But when Grandfather and the other Judean soldiers turned to fight back, the Babylonians just completely overpowered them. The Judean army scattered and fled, and the rebellion died on that field. Nebuchadnezzar then had the Judean king Zedekiah captured and then brought before him. And there Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers slaughtered all the sons of Zedekiah right before his eyes. And they then gouged out those same eyes. So the last thing Zedekiah ever saw was the mutilated bodies of his own sons. He was then bound in chains and taken away to Babylon. Then the Babylonians rounded up thousands and thousands of the people of Judah to take them back to Babylon in exile. And this included my grandfather and his family. Men, women, children, everyone from the elderly to babes in arms. In the months it took to get to Babylon, my grandfather watched as first his mother and then his father succumbed to disease and death. He buried both of them on the side of a dusty desert road far from the holy city of Jerusalem. Grandfather spent the rest of his life struggling to understand how this could have possibly happened. How could the Lord let his people suffer such a fate in his search for answers? My grandfather looked to the writings of the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had been a court prophet during the reigns of multiple Judean kings about 150 years before. And Isaiah's basic message was that the Lord would bring judgment to Judah because the nation failed to worship the Lord alone, failed to trust in the Lord's providence, and failed to care for the poor, the orphan and the widow and the stranger. But this meant that the defeat of Judah then was not the result of the Babylonian gods being greater than the Lord God. The defeat of Judah was not because 
the Babylonian gods had defeated the Lord in some heavenly battle. The defeat of Judah was the will of the Lord who was disciplining the people of God. And understanding the defeat of Judah through the writings of Isaiah helped my grandfather come to grips with the trauma that he and the rest of Judah had suffered. In fact, he became so enamored with Isaiah that he talked my father into naming me Isaiah as well. My grandfather's affinity for the prophet Isaiah developed in me a very deep curiosity about my namesake. And so I began to read Isaiah for myself. And I dove deep into the prophet's writings, so deep that I began to write myself. Perhaps the fall of Jerusalem was our just punishment for failing to honor the Lord, but the pain and the deprivation of the exile seemed to me to be more than we deserved. So I began to write, and I wrote, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and the people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then I just kept right on writing. Whatever punishment we had deserved, Judah had now paid double for all its sins. And the time of punishment had given way to a time for comfort and more importantly, a time for restoration. As I wrote, I felt God communicating to me a message for a new generation. The people needed to prepare for a return to the land of Judah and to the city of Jerusalem. After all, the first Isaiah had written about a remnant of the people who would remain and restore the kingdom. We exiles in Babylon, we were the remnant. Though we had suffered double for all our sins, I began to see that our suffering might serve a greater purpose. Maybe God was working through our suffering to affect greater change. We were being called as a nation to be suffering servants of the Lord God. And the more I contemplated the suffering servant, the more I felt compelled to write about him. Sometimes I saw the entire remnant of the people of Judah as the suffering servants of the Lord. As time went on, however, I began to see God's suffering servants coalesce into the face of a single man. I knew this man was not someone I had ever met, but in my mind's eye, I could see his face. And I wrote about his face when I said, just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. And as this face of the suffering servant came into clearer focus, I began to see even further 
And so I further wrote, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. After that, the vision began to grow dimmer, but I could still see this man so marred in appearance beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of mortals, and yet I could still see him lifted up and exalted. I felt compelled to follow this man. He was the great suffering servant who called all of us to go forward and through our suffering to go forward until the world was made whole again. Just as my grandfather rose up and resisted the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar, we too are called to rise up and resist all such tyrants. Tyrants who seek to impose their will not only on their own people with whom they have been entrusted, but on a people's not their own who pose no threat to them. Through the strength of the suffering servant, we can have the strength to call out so-called leaders who sacrifice the most vulnerable of children for their own selfish political gains. If I ever met such a man, I would be willing to follow him to the ends of the earth. By following him, it gives all of us who find ourselves as part of God's great remnant a chance to serve, a chance to play a part in God's great design to save the world. My grandfather still sometimes stares out into the desert as if looking for that lost army of Judah. But maybe what he's really looking for is the face of a man to come, the face of a suffering servant who through his own righteousness shall make many righteous. Sometimes I too sit there beside my grandfather and I stare out in the desert and I pray for the coming of a man who shall forever end the need for armies. A man who, as the great prophet Isaiah wrote, shall someday come to be known as the Prince of Peace. Amen. Just a reminder, you can always find a recording of our service on our website, tumcd.org, on our Facebook page. You can find just the scripture and sermon on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Your action items for this week to continue to pray for Trinity, uh, but to also pray for our own Lenten discipline that we may find this a productive 40 days and 40 nights that lie ahead of us. Now let us receive this benediction. Though the night is dark, the light of the world goes before you, guiding your steps and illuminating your way forward. Go then in peace, ready to serve the one who has loved you from the very beginning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we continue our sermon series, Easter in the First Person. 
How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look like to those who were there? Come hear the whole story. You'll find recordings for all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember that we are now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.